0: Y'all, I am so excited to introduce you to Carla. I literally spent this entire episode getting my mind blown from her. She is so, so, so incredible. And I hope you are ready for this woman and to just be so blown away by her and her commitment to her community and her heritage and supporting others and she... I'm just going to get to it because she is amazing, Um, but reminder that if you want to start changing your life, you can get my free guide to doing so, three tips to start changing your life at livemyhappyhealth.com, and now we're going to get back to Carla, who is literally such a force. (laughs) <laughs> okay welcome podcast fam you guys are going to love the woman that i have today if you're just listening on the podcast you can't see her very cool background but she has like graffiti in her house and these murals and it is like oh my god it's such a vibe so we are with carla Cordero, who is a poet living out in san diego and uh hello welcome
1: hi hello good morning and thanks for having me super happy to be here So please tell us about you. Sure, so my name is Carla Cordero, or Carla Cordero. Um, I'm originally from a little city called Calexico, Calexico, which is the border town of Mexicali, Mexico. Uh, Calexico primarily being a small border town um, at the very bottom edge of California. Uh, Born and raised there to an awesome family, uh, dominantly Latino, um, Catholic, conservative, Um, Yeah, and then after kind of just enjoying my childhood there, I moved up to San Diego, um, went on the educational path and journey, and then ended up finding myself as an educator, so I'm a professor at San Diego State University, as well as Miracosta College, and then I dabble also at San Diego City College, so I'm kind of those that free floater educator, but enjoys it all very much. Um, I'm also a published uh, award-winning poet, so I write poems for a living and talk to people about poetry and the power of language and what you can do for that, especially for our historically marginalized um, and underrepresented youth. Um, I'm also an event and um, community organizer, so I am the Um, social justice equity coordinator for a nonprofit called Glassless Minds out in Oceanside, California. And what we do there is facilitate an open mic for our youth to come in and express themselves uh, freely, as well as an open space for our local vendors to support the local art scene. And yeah, in kind of a nutshell, I'm also an aunt and I'm enjoying being an aunt uh, to my niece Zoe. And I'm also an organic chicana farmer. So I grow all my food in my backyard, all organic, eating all the greens. Um, in addition to the complexity and excitement of that identity, I also am now um, not only chicana, an educator, um, and poet, an artist, and community um, organizer, but I was also recently diagnosed with an autoimmune disease called Hashimoto's, which affects the thyroid. So, um, like I had said, all coming into a nutshell, that's kind of just the jits of what I do and what I am and how I celebrate every day.
0: Um, I want to be you when I grow up.
1: (laughs) Oh, thank you. I want to be, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to be a better version of myself when I grow up. (laughs) So
0: I'm working on it. So how did you get into, oh my God, there's so many avenues to go to. So. How did you get into community organizing? Cause I really want to, I would sure. love to hit on that. Cause I haven't had anyone come on and talk about that. And it mm-hmm. is a lot of, um, I think a lot of people just don't know. Mm-hmm. So we're out in North Carolina, mm, okay. so, like the intersectionality of like the Latino community and having, having that kind of melting pot. Isn't the same as in like Southern California. So can
1: mm-hmm. you talk
0: to us about your grassroots organizing and activism and what that looks like and what you guys do?
1: Yeah. I mean, the origins of just kind of the motivation to be in the space of building community, um, I guess, really started with my family. My family um, really made our home a space with an open door for anybody who wanted to come in and have a cup of coffee and talk about hardships and and good things in life. And uh, when I started going to school, a lot of the textbooks that were handed to me primarily when I started doing my master's, Uh, program at San Diego State, they were textbooks written by people that looked like me, that had experiences like me, and the only way they opened the doors and the windows and these mirror reflections of self and coming to terms with identity was really in collaboration with community. This being um, having a writing group, marching and protesting, um, working towards writing and developing policies, creating curriculum in the classroom that was more equity-based. And so when I was learning all of these things, you know, how do we put ourselves in positions of empowerment? It always seemed at the end of the day to come back towards this idea of collaborative community building. When I fell in love with poetry and then I had all this like theory and framework of the power of building community, I said, how can I put what I love and put it and invest it back into the community? And immediately me and my, my partner, um, we wanted to create a space where artists, especially young emerging artists, um, can kind of express themselves freely. And that's also something I practice in my classroom, is that we don't just learn about poetry at the end of the semester. Our goal is to do a community service learning project, where we take what we've learned and what we've practiced and what we've created as, as artists and give it back to the community. And so that continues to kind of just grow every semester with a new group of students and
0: um, here in
1: our neighborhood as well. What
0: does that look like when you do the community service projects? What have people done? So
1: in, in college, primarily, we have uh, at least here in California and where I work at, we have what's called student service learning or some folks call it volunteering or community service. Student service learning is when you partner up with a um, program on campus and they're called student service learning and you kind of brainstorm together what your curriculum looks like in the classroom and how can we take the framework of what we're we're learning and -hmm. apply that into the real world or apply that into uh, our community members, uh, folks who lack equity, folks who need support, awareness, education about any concept. And if I'm bringing in a textbook about, I don't know, the framework of border issues and border injustice, how can we take that knowledge and apply it to the border we have so close to ourselves here in San Diego next to Tijuana? And what can we do to give back to that community or to promote an awareness about the injustices or creating a visibility for those people? And so we partner up and build curriculum to have a project at the end of the semester where students can kind of work um, towards that, whether it be um, an informational presentation to the campus, whether it be we've taken field trips over to a location called Friendship Park, which is a border, literally the wall that separates Tijuana and San Diego, and Mm -hmm. families come together to see their loved ones through a fence because someone might be undocumented. Maybe we'll go down there for a field trip and give out bottles of water and snack and show our support and allyship in those spaces. So that's kind of what projects are looking like, but they're very, very different based on what you're teaching.
0: That is, I love that you're, so you're essentially teaching them how to be grassroots community Mm -hmm. activists. Absolutely. Yeah, and
1: then we'll also run like open mics. I run an open mic called Voice for Change where we invite nationally award-winning spoken word artists, kind of come spit their truth, talk about diversity, cultural competency. And so students come together to also figure out how do you set up an event? And that might be setting up chairs, marketing, design, emceeing, DJ. And so they also take on, right, the the elements and the roles of what it takes to facilitate that kind of an
0: event. Okay, I like, I'm so, my mind is so blown that like, I do a lot. <laughs> I overwork myself. But it's yeah. what it takes to create a new generation. And I um Yeah. Oh my I could just like I'm like screaming internally and I just want to like oh. if what you just said with like a bathtub, I just want to like lay in it oh, <laughs> and like yeah, immerse myself at it. So there's lots
1: can of you, bubbles, yes. <laughs>
0: Can you talk about what allyship looks like? Because a lot of people want to support social justice movements or marginalized communities, and they're not really sure how, Um, especially if you come from a place of privilege or you are white, sometimes like the white savior complex comes in. So can you talk a little bit about that and how to be an ally without taking over, like how to support but not take over people who are already doing the work? Does that make sense?
1: No, absolutely. And, you know, my definition of allyship is, again, stemming from limited and stemming from the mentors and the textbooks and, and the kind of work I've done myself and the kinds of things I've done to check my own privilege. And if we start with the language of like allyship and privilege, when we talk about privilege, a lot of folks primarily go to like, ah, white privilege. Right. But there's mm-hmm. a spectrum of privileges. This could be religion. Um, well, this could be class race sexuality, gender, um, you know, and so we can't forget that every individual person has some kind of level or lack of privilege. So if I were to look and examine my privilege, I have the privilege of a car, I have a privilege of a job, I have a privilege of financial stability and so forth. And when we talk about allyship is when we recognize at equal playing level mm-hmm. uh, community folks in our community, or maybe reaching out beyond our community, beyond our comfort zones, to acknowledge a visibility for a people, whether it be the LGBTQ plus, um, community, whether it be our undocumented community members. And when we say allyship, it's one, establishing a recognition of the hardships that they've encountered and understanding the historical context of where that comes from. Mm. Two, is then evaluating what am I doing to show support to that community. And that simply could be checking out who are the loved ones closest to you that identify with that community and how are you showing your love and compassion and support? Do you speak up when a joke is said, you know, that belittles them? So it starts internally, right? And if we can practice that internal muscle of allyship, then it Mm -hmm. branches out, right? And branching out looks like, well, who are my local organizations and nonprofits in this case, even my students and their student clubs. Mm-hmm. And allyship looks like reaching out and saying, you know, I appreciate you doing this good work. What can I do to support you? What can I do to be present? What can I do with my privilege to step in and continue to show allyship for your cause? And that's a really nice approach versus starting your own club, mm-hmm. uh, starting your own organization, or starting your own march that might not necessarily identify with who you are Mm -hmm. instead, reach out to the folks that are already doing the good work within those communities and saying, what can I do to support? I want to be a hundred, you know?
0: And it's that simple. So it's, it's interesting that you landed there because the interview I did this morning um, Mm -hmm. was a local business owner who is very invested and has built into his business plan to invest in local organizations and nonprofits. And he said, The exact same words. It's not how can I help you? It's how can I support you? You're already doing the work. I want to be another framework for doing that. So it's like that's a theme today. And I love it.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. And the investment, like if you got the privilege of financial stability, can you make a donation to this organization? And that support, you know, travels so far.
0: Yeah. So I think a lot of people don't know that when you when you donate a certain amount to a nonprofit, they often have avenues that can amplify that donation. And so people think, well, where is my money going? Mm-hmm. Well, one, you can ask. <laughs> There's yeah. ways that you can look it up online their their nonprofit rating and you can just ask them, like, when I donate, where does the money go to? Yeah. And they'll tell you. Mm
1: hmm. Yeah, a lot of times when we get donations for, you know, let's say our nonprofit, Open My Glasses Minds, we're always very clear where the money's invested. But, yeah, it's as simple as asking and we'd be more than happy. Or we might say we don't know yet. We're, a lot of times nonprofits or organizations put it in a bank. Mm-hmm. In this case, if we have an emergency where someone within our community wants to participate in this art show, but they don't got enough canvas, let's yeah. talk to that bank to support them and their, their art.
0: Things like that. Yeah. So people can call and ask. They just they show up and they support, but not take away from the work that they're doing. Oh, I love this theme today. How did you get into teaching?
1: Well, as as always, I love going back to childhood. Um, my mom worked in a mercado, which is a, a grocery store, family owned grocery store. My father was a manager at a hardware store. Um, handed down by my grandfather so he managed that and a lot of times I would stay home I was kind of the matriarch while the big matriarch was out doing her you know getting that money Uh, (laughs) and I would have to be home and facilitate two sisters into like cooking and cleaning and not you know having them pull each other apart and a lot of the games we would play it was just like oh let's play teacher and I would just be teaching curriculum on like let's draw a butterfly right and so Really, it started at a young age of just coming into this position of leadership and wanting to just share stuff with people. Um, again, going through my educational journey of getting my AA and my BA and my masters, it was just going through that pipeline of meeting different educators and mentors who would share this knowledge that gave me this new understanding of self, this new understanding of how to see the world and really brilliant and beautiful ways, and I was addicted to absorbing that knowledge yeah. that when I was trying to figure out, well, what the heck do I want to do? And I really wanted to just go back and be a student again, and I figured mm-hmm. the best way to do that was to be a professor where I can learn from my students and take in all their cultural wealth and richness and knowledge that they bring into the classroom and then me, myself, sharing Um the knowledge I have to kind of continue to nurture their own wealth that they possess. And it's, it's just been an, an addiction ever since.
0: Uh, everything you say, I'm just like, is straight up cold. Aww. It's so good. Like you can tell that you express yourself and teach for a living. Like it's, uh, okay, I'm obsessed. So I would imagine then that like wanting to dig into the human condition and learn and dig into yourself, like poetry plays a huge role in that. So how did you, find
1: poetry, how did poetry find you? Ooh, and that's always the question, right? Did you find poetry, did poetry find you? And it's like, it's a complicated relationship, but an awesome relationship. Um, Okay, so what ended up happening were two kind of interventions. Intervention one was when I was doing my bachelor's at Cal State San Marcos, Uh, one teacher, I was taking her class, it was called Literature in the Community. And one of our projects was, and again, notice community service Mm -hmm. in effect here when I was a student and didn't even know what was happening. She goes, I want you to go out into the community and I want you to figure out what what is the community doing with literature? And I was like, what the heck? I'm like, all right. So I saw this one flyer that said Poetry Slam in this location city called Encinitas, California. So I said, cool, I'll go to that theme. And I visualized a bunch of old dudes spitting Shakespeare, holding a skull, and I was like, all right, let's just go do this. So
0: you've never been to a poetry slam before
1: then? Never, it's never. So I've from- <laughs> never heard of a poetry slam, and I am, I think, like the age of 20. I don't know, 23 by this time, somewhere around there. But I needed to get that extra credit because I was obsessed with like, I gotta get this good GPA, right? And so I went to this event called Poetry Slam and I sat in this giant auditorium and there was this raised stage and I was just completely blown away, blown away. And those of you that don't know what a poetry slam is, it's basically a competition where different poets, usually ranging from 12 to 16 poets, compete in three rounds. Each round you have to spit a poem and you got three minutes to do it. Your job is to convince five random selected judges that your poem was worth their time. And so they will judge you from a zero being the worst thing they've ever heard to a 10 being the most fantastic, mind-blowing poem they've ever heard. Mm -hmm. And I got to see this, and I came out just so emotionally overwhelmed, Mm -hmm. crying and upset and happy, and I was addicted to this energy of these poets that were telling stories I was able to connect to and relate to. And I was, again, I was just like, I need to figure out how to do this thing. And my intervention number two was just attending these open mics and being a creeper and just following these beautiful (laughs) poets, drinking my coffee with my little notebook and saying like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Yeah. And eventually they took me under their wing. Um, In 2013, I tried out and then was part of the uh, San Diego Poetry Slam team, and we would compete at nationals. Uh, we came in fourth in the nation out of 72 teams that year, and it was crazy because I was the only and first Chicana to ever be part of the team in San Diego. And, and San
0: Diego has such a huge
1: community. like Yes, it's-, it's absolutely beautiful. And so long story short, it's coming back from nationals and just having epiphanies of all these wonderful poets I looked up to and I remember telling one poet I love you I've seen you on YouTube and I remember him telling me as we got off the elevator thank you but when I go home I go back to being a janitor and I was like dang and so again I wanted to make sure when I went into the occupation of education that I was bridging these voices into the classroom and continuing to write my own stories Uh, yeah
0: yeah I think one of the best ways to get lost, so I have a lot of uh, friends who like get lost in YouTube rabbit holes, but they'll watch like car videos or they'll whatever, right? One of my favorite ways to get lost down a YouTube rabbit hole is actually slam poetry. So I, oh my God, I just like for people that don't listen to it, YouTube, who's some of your favorite poets that people should check out? If they're like, that's kind of cool, I'd be interested to hear some. Well, if you're looking for
1: a channel, Button Poetry is fantastic. They were the first organization to start archiving these videos because nobody was recording them. Some like actually.
0: Button on your yeah, shirt? Yeah,
1: like a little button, like buttons on your clothes. Yeah, yep. Button Poetry, they're phenomenal um, in terms of the voices they're recording. Uh, one about the local poets here in San Diego, absolutely phenomenal. He was on the Jimmy Fallon show twice. Um, his name is Rudy Francisco. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, beautiful poet. I highly recommend um, you check out, check him out on YouTube. And then there's so many. Um, I mean, my goodness, Denise Froman, Patricia Smith, um, Pages Matam, there, there's uh, Mercedes holtree Jessica Salgado. There's so many beautiful poets. Um, I can I can go on and on, but there's a lot to check out.
0: There's so many. So maybe start with button poetry and then. And then go down the rabbit hole. Go that down the rabbit hole. hole. Yes. And then you'll find you'll find the folks
1: you vibe with because everyone, you know, has a different kind of taste and theme and you find what you love there. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Mm. Yeah. I think that language, I just, I'm so yeah. obsessed with this interview and I'm like in the middle of it. I That's think that language is such a powerful way. So I'm a therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, One of the things that I work with all the time is like, I call it like the soundtrack in your head, right? Mm -hmm. So the soundtrack in your head that talks about your day and your perspective and how you see things and how you see other people, it's so powerful. And I think poetry is one way to really get people to think about the words that they use and how the nuance between words can change your life. So I have a lot of clients who say, well, I'm bad at X. Mm-hmm. Or I can't do X. And I'm like, you were bad at X. You're practicing being better at this. Yes. You can't do this yet. And just that one little tweak changes their entire like frame That's of good. mind. And so what have you seen when you're teaching this? Because I would imagine like poet, the classes you're teaching, not everyone is super into poetry or literature when they come in. And so what are some of the changes that you see once these kids start really, I think my cat's gonna hack up a hairball. Oh no. <laughs> you, you have I, hope it's smooth. I hope it's not a hairball, like why is your timing so bad? Sorry. Um, no, you're good. <laughs> when you start teaching people to really pay attention to their words and how powerful they can be, what are the things that you see and how do you teach them to do that?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the favorite part, right, is having the students who come in and say, oh, I hate poetry. I don't understand it. How do we how do we convert them to the poetry side? And so a lot of times, again, going back to nurturing a community, a safe space, the safest space you can make and offering them poetry that is contemporary, genuine, honest with. Who they are, their families, their identities. And when you start offering that kind of literature to students and then you create a really nice environment to have discussions on the power of that language. There's this really nice, I call it magic, poetry's magic, where we get to look at language and it just turns on the human spirit. Uh, again, there's a beautiful writer. His name is Don Miguel Ruiz. He wrote this yes. book, called The Four Agreements. And he talks about how when we're children, we are our most liberated and reckless and free selves. But we um, become domesticated into adulthood and we forget imagination and we forget what freedom looks like through language. And when you get to offer poetry to students, you get to see that childhood activated the so the, you know the social and spiritual human body activated again and when they get excited through language they're way more amped to create their own pieces of work through the their own language and the multiplicity of the tongues that they own and they're very honest and so yeah th- that's what I see when when they get to be in a space they feel comfortable in and you offer them the right kinds of poems, mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily a bunch of Shakespeare. Shakespeare's important, but beyond Shakespeare and into contemporary, you get to see some magic happen where they get to be vulnerable themselves, and then
0: even share it. And it's it's really cool. It's a great thing to see. Everything you're saying, I'm just screaming right now. I love the analogy that like kids have no one. They have no filter. I love yeah. children because they de-gap. things and I'm just like goals um (laughs) but it's something kids are always in the moment they're curious they just make stuff up they like people hate the why phase with children Mm -hmm. but I don't understand that like if you don't know something and you want to learn What better question is there? So I would actually get in trouble a lot as like an employee Mm -hmm. because I want to know why things are the way they are. And a lot of people took it as insubordinate. And that's one of the ways Mm -hmm. that people get. What did you call it from Miguel Ruiz? Um, He calls it reckless, wild, free. Yeah, Yeah, so that's one of the ways people get domesticated is we get shamed for asking questions. Mm -hmm. We get shamed for be realistic and but that could never happen and your head is in the clouds and all of those little rhetorics that shame people. And I just love that through language and metaphors, right? Humans are metaphor makers. So I use horses in therapy sessions Mm -hmm. and the reason they work is because horses become the metaphor. They embody the metaphor that people are trying to discuss and they stand in for people sorry my cat again is now (laughs) into the box i have my computer on a box so he's like i'm gonna sit in the box oh no worries um so humans are metaphor makers like there's a reason that when marketing is storytelling um Mm. all of those things are storytelling humans are made to do that so what's one of the maybe like biggest transformations you've seen in one of your classes does that make sense that question yeah like an individual student yeah you don't have to share their name or any like yeah information but what's something you've seen that you're like that really and the
1: transformation where let's say they just like were exposed to poetry and so forth
0: or language and they like they just they got it
1: I mean, so there's so many stories, so many stories. If I had to think of maybe, oh, geez, that's a really great question because it's like all my students are like my little children, babies of awesomeness. (laughs) And I I
0: want people to get how powerful language is and finding imaginative language.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think if I have to think, Recently, because then if I go into the past, I'm going to just come up with so many more stories. But when we went into quarantine last year, I was teaching a poetry seminar course. And I mean, nothing's better than being in the classroom with students and talking about poetry like these philosophers of the 21st century, you know, of language and so forth. So when we went virtual, a lot of my students were bummed. And a lot of my students ended up using poetry as kind of this avenue of putting language together to understand the heartache of quarantine and the heartache of not understanding how to deal with a pandemic that's killing their loved ones and building fear and making spaces really small. And it was really beautiful to see one particular student to who their project was to create kind of a a little chat book and a chat book is this really condensed version of a collection of creative work Mm -hmm. and she ended up using poetry as kind of an avenue of exploring like the microcosms of the world and so microcosms being taking the time to slow down and look at the really beautiful things of her life that she would take for granted and what was really phenomenal was to see how she used small things to make big worlds. And so how do we take small, the small spaces we're confined into and use language to create an endless world for us to be imaginative and explore. And so it was just kind of a really nice healing space for her to illustrate and write poetry and blew our minds with this beautiful chapbook. She had put so much time in to just talk about the hardship of being inside of a household with like um, a domestically abusive family Mm. and how can she use language to build her own worlds outside of of that party. And it it was just really cool to see her present that and be very vulnerable. That's another thing a lot of times we dismiss is like this idea of how vulnerable our students are with the language and the stories they expose. And that was a really beautiful thing to see.
0: Yeah. I love that because I think it also taps into a level of honesty that a lot of people don't give themselves. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and a lot of times we'll say like, oh, great poetry is like putting the best, dopest language together and it sounds so good. But a lot of times the best poetry is the most honest poetry um, because you feel that. You feel regardless of how great or how many literary devices, if it's honest, mm-hmm. it, it's going to be great. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, something I find a lot when I work with people is they, again, back to language. So I have um, a number of women i worked with who are in, um, how do I say this? They're in relationships with a partner who doesn't meet their needs and doesn't want to. Mm-hmm. Not that they can't, they don't want to. And so one of the things I work really hard with women on, mm-hmm. I see it more often in women than men, but it also happens with men. My client specifically, it's more women is about being really honest about the way that they frame situations. Let's say, oh, they're so busy. And I'm like, they're not busy. They don't want to spend time with you. Mm. And that level of like unfiltering honesty, when people are honest with themselves, it really gives them because we can build this fantasy out. Right. Mm-hmm. where You say, oh, it's not that bad. Or if only, if only, if only. But that keeps us in a really crappy cycle of being stuck. So when we're level, when we're honest to the level of saying, Oh, they're not busy. I'm not a priority. Mm-hmm. Or, um, I'm not stuck. I'm afraid. Like, mm-hmm. Once we know we're afraid, we can do something about it. And I just, that I think that honesty and that language together makes like, it creates change because not if you're honest right. about the situations that are going on in your community, in the world, mm-hmm. you're going to be uncomfortable enough eventually to do something about them as well.
1: Right, and language offers that as well. A lot of times when I'm giving students feedback on their poems, it's very surface level with their images. Love is like a flower, and then they move on. And I was like, wait a minute, you just did a lot of work there. I need you to get to this, like, push beyond surface. And what does the flower look like? Are there thorns on it? Where is it rooted? What is its place? Mm -hmm. Is the weather like... And that information and that language is really revealing of, you know, the student's psyche and how they're feeling emotionally that day. And so I say, don't brush over your image. Visit that image and really study what the flower looks like when we're talking about love. And they'll unpack all these images that I'm like, whoa. These are so much better because they're so yeah. much deeper. Yes, yeah. I'm like, you just had a breakup, didn't you? And she's like, yeah. I'm like, Good, study the flower. What happens after? How do you keep on it the thing.
0: Yes, exactly. Yes. Mm. Love that. Where to go to next? Ah, so you are a poet. You have an autoimmune. Let's go into the autoimmune because never talked to someone with Hashimoto's. And mm-hmm. yeah. tell us about what that is.
1: Sure, and I'm still learning myself.
0: Um, I come from a family. Tell us what it is for you. Oh, what was that? I probably, I said, tell us what it is for you, because I imagine it's different symptoms for different people, and so it's yeah. Absolutely. Um,
1: again, I come from a family that um have a history of autoimmune diseases. So if you have a family that come from uh, uh, that have autoimmune diseases, you're already prone at high risk that most likely. They call it like your gene is your identity that that's gonna carry on maybe maybe not. Um, And so my mother had thyroid issues. She had cancer, had had a piece of her thyroid removed, and so many many years later, um, it was funny. I was just talking to my um, partner yesterday about like what might have triggered the Hashimoto's, and I was diagnosed last year in August. And so the doctor, it was through a Skype call and she basically just said, yeah, you have this thing called Hashimoto's disease. It's an autoimmune disease. And I'm like, well, what the heck is that? And it's basically an autoimmune disease where your immune system is convinced by means that your thyroid is a foreign threat to the body and your autoimmune disease works, or not autoimmune disease, your immune system works over time to basically destroy your thyroid. Your thyroid being a really important part of the body that distributes super important hormones throughout the body that controls muscle, um, joint function, bowel movements, your intestinal system, especially Mm -hmm. your emotions, your energy, your libido, it just it's just such an important aspect of the body that once that's thrown out of whack, mm-hmm. one of the is. Yeah, yeah, one of the yeah. downfalls of Hashimoto's is that you have all these like horrific um, chronic pain um, and you also deal with like depression and anxiety. And so when I was first diagnosed, um, a lot of things had been happening. Um, the pandemic, my job, um, you know, family issues, the fear of people getting sick. And um, for me, it was just trying to figure out and anticipate what my body is going to look like. And mm-hmm. a, lot, a lot of that looked like severe joint pain, low energy, super fatigue, not motivated, depression, anxiety, losing my hair, you know, all those fun symptoms. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, that's kind of what happened, and the approach now is just working with a nutritionist and an endocrinologist and a primary care um, doctor and all of us working together to now give me what's called artificial hormone, Levoxel. So what they do with folks who have thyroid issues or Hashimoto's is you're then administered artificial heart hormone to facilitate and replace the hormones that your immune system is essentially destroying. Okay. And that's kind of where we're at right now, trying to facilitate a good um, nutritional diet that and trying to figure out environmental triggers and then trying to facilitate uh, medication dosage to kind of help balance everything out.
0: How long from when you started what you now know were Hashimoto's symptoms until you sought answers? Because a lot of those, like, Depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. like a lot of people have those forever, or joint mm-hmm. pain. They'll say, "Oh, I'm getting older," or, mm-hmm. you know, how long until you were like, "Oh, okay, this is too many things."
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I'm trying to track down now. I think what happened was. I would express um, to my husband, my, my partner, Mario, um, this consistent, like, joint pain. And we'd be like, oh, it's just work. Or, oh, you're overworking yourself. Let me just give you a massage. Everything will be okay. But it was this persistent pain. And then on top of that, it was just this emotional way of not being excited to teach consistently, mm-hmm. not being excited to get out of bed. Um, literally in the middle of cooking breakfast and then I just start sobbing for no particular reason. And so in my head, I'm like, this isn't right. I'm not okay. Yeah. yeah I'm like, this is, this is not balanced. And oh. it, it was more having my partner say like, are you okay? Is this normal? And so
0: we're like sobbing over scrambled eggs and he's like,
1: yes, <laughs> whether whether it gave it some extra flavor or not, you know, I'm, when I'm just I, salt in it. yeah at the end of the day it was just when you begin to question and when your loved ones begin to witness and question that questioning of like is this normal yeah Um, that was kind of my move to be okay I need to go to the doctor and figure out what's going on now
0: autoimmune disorders are like kind of notorious for not getting diagnosed for a long time, and then you add on the fact that you're a woman, and it's like the yeah. the misdiagnosed chances are much higher. So, what was the process like for you getting the the diagnosis that fit?
1: Oh, it was, it's been a roller coaster. Um, well, one again, shout out to healthcare and those that have access to healthcare. At the time when I was trying to figure out what was going on with my body, I had an HMO, meaning mm. um, I was limited to where I can access support for my health, which means I never had a consistent doctor. I always had different doctors and this kind of like retelling of my my symptoms and this retelling of what the previous doctor said. And so that was always a hardship to never have trust in in the medical field and healthcare system because it was this retelling consistently and convincing that I'm not feeling well. Immediately, um, my partner, Mario, was like, we need to get you a better um, uh, health care program because it's it's not working. Yeah. And so when I switched over to a PPO, um, this gives you access to more consistent doctors, um, more immediate health care, higher quality, unfortunately, health care and these are folks that have been in the field for years versus the doctors I had been working with prior were just out of um, you know, medical school, which isn't a bad thing. But when you have a specialist who focuses on some, you know, in this case, um, Hashimoto's right. and they've been doing it for 25 years. It's they're gonna have, exactly. They're going to have better insight into how to treat the body. And um, so I'm literally in the middle of getting all these new doctors and just feeling more comfortable and them just saying like, no, we're gonna take care of you versus when I was with an um, HMO, HMO, it always felt like they were on the clock and needed to get to the next patient. Yeah. And just having good healthcare has mm-hmm. made a difference. Um, and yeah, that, that's kind of, so you, our interview right now is like literally in the middle, limbo, <laughs> of moving from HMO to PPO, and just like seeing what good quality
0: healthcare looks like. We'll have to do an update. It's oh, so funny because yeah. all these people I talk to, I'm just like, you're like everyone is so cool, and I'm just like, I want to talk to you about a million things. Let's <laughs> <laughs> do cool. one at on a later date too, because yeah. everyone is so. Dope. But it makes a huge difference. So that's one of the ways that privilege shows up. And and back to the conversation in the very beginning, like privilege is intersectional, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people. Because privilege is kind of a new term, right? So North Carolina is more rural, where, where mm-hmm. I'm from is more rural. So the education around privilege that's not just race is not as prevalent. Right. Um, so intersectional, do you have access to healthcare, a car, your education, mm-hmm. um, male or female or non-binary or trans or not trans, heterosexual, homosexual? Like, it makes a huge difference in for people that don't think of it that way, I think it can be very eye opening for people to start saying, okay, in what ways am I oppressed and in what ways am I the oppressor?
1: Yes.
0: And so that is, good. once people start thinking about that, if they can take the shame and the guilt out, it can really create change. And that's something that I've seen happen is when you are in a different place, how can you then extend, just like you're doing, how can you then extend to your community? and support people who are probably like there's organizations doing everything that Mm -hmm. I could think of like things I couldn't even think of there are people in there doing it so I just love that what does your activism work look like um for someone who's like okay yeah um (laughs) so there's some rhetoric in the Mm -hmm. U.S. that like all activists are bad I guess like Mm -hmm. grassroots Like, the U.S., as you know, because you're from, Hispanic cultures tend to be very collective. Mm -hmm. Whereas the U.S. is very individualistic, so they say, well, I'm going to vote with my dollars, which works, but collective is always stronger than the individual. So you kind of hold that dual nature because you exist in both cultures. Like, what does that look like for you?
1: Yeah, and the the beautiful part about activism or claiming to be an activist is there's a spectrum right how, how we've been I think the term is like duality and intersectional and so there's different ways we can be our own um activist or practice activism and when you talked about duality I was like ah you hit it on the money <laughs> I actually use a term what's called artivist and so I needed to create a hybrid term that had already existed where <laughs> so- Huh?
0: And I said, of course, you created a new term. Language.
1: <laughs> well, not, not, well not, not necessarily like I was the founder of the term. But when I heard that the, this term existed, I was like, oh, that's the term I need in my life. Yes. There's this idea of artivism, of how am I using art, not just for the sake of putting paintbrush to canvas or poem on the stage, but how am I using art to create a movement, to create change and awareness again, allyship. And so... A lot of my artivism comes from, again, the, uh, this, the moment I step into the classroom, how am I using the privilege of my position mm-hmm. to give students the education, not just to learn and vomit this, um, as uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, vomit back what I want to hear from them, but more right. so give them knowledge they need to not just be better versions of themselves, but to take that knowledge and apply it back to their own communities, into bettering those spaces. And so for me, artivism is what I do in the classroom with my students. Artivism is what I do with our nonprofit Glassless Minds and how we create a space that hopefully nurtures voices and they see the passion and they see the compassion and hoping that they take that love and apply it back into their home or into their families or into their own spaces. And so, again, I'm all about the domino effect. You show compassion and you show excitement for what art can do. And you're hoping that the people that leave that space replicate that in their own own
0: spaces, you know? Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So good. I love this. So we're almost at, Time. Tell us how people can find you. Where is your work? What if they're like, you're so cool. I want you to teach me things to ah, get in touch with you.
1: I love it. Yes. So you can definitely find me on my website. Uh, that is www.carlacordero.com and Carla with a K, K A R L A Cordero, C O R D E R O dot com. I'm also super active. Um, and always present on my Instagram account, and that would be at Carla K A R L A Flaca with a K F L A K A thirteen. You can find me there. And like I always tell all folks, whenever I do an interview or you know podcast or anything, please know like this is not the end of our conversation. I am a forever resource. So if anybody wants to reach out, tell me your stories, come hang out, ask a question. Um, I am always an open door. Um, I also facilitate various writing workshops. So that is always posted on my IG page and you can support and buy my book from me direct. Um, I am the author of a poetry collection called How to Pull Apart the Earth. So if you all are interested and want to check that out, message me. We could facilitate that and that'd be wonderful. Mm.
0: I just love it so much. So funny story. My dad is Cuban. Uh Um, so he he didn't remember my friends' names growing up. Yeah. Which is fine. He knew what street they lived on, but my friend Elise in particular, she's thin like you. Mm-hmm. And so every time I would say Elise, he would go, Elise Flaca? And I'm like yeah. <laughs> and that's how he knew her from I think the time we were fourteen until today. I love it. <laughs> and we're thirty now. That's what most dads do. You know, they,
1: they forget names, but then, but they remember features, you know? Right.
0: He's yeah, like the skinny one. one. Like, yes. <laughs> oh, man. Thank you so much. Like, what a, what a gift you have, like, given. Oh, Even you. if everyone else hates this episode, I freaking love it. I think everyone's going to love it, but I'm, like, <laughs> literally internally screaming.
1: Oh, I love it. Well, thank you. Thank, well, hey, it all comes down to having a good a good facilitator of the podcast and you, you were fantastic. So thank you for mm-hmm. having me. It was fun. Uh-huh. It was a lot of fun. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you.
0: Oh my God, though. How amazing is she? Now she has got her book, how to pull apart the earth that can be found at her website. And I hope you guys grab a copy and are As inspired by her as I was doing that interview because she is just phenomenal. So go do some change, my little change makers. All right, be good.